Hi, I'm Kate Carrigan, and this is Croaky Voices. I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being made, and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. This week, in our first episode, COVID-19 and its impact on remote communities. Certainly identified as the key thing facing regional remote Australia, especially um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, given the low health outcomes they experience in any case. And that's exacerbated by the fact that it affects people who are getting older and have things like respiratory problems. And what difference will the federal government's move to boost funding to telehealth make to patients and medical practitioners as infection rates rise across Australia? Hello, Santane speaking. That's Dr. Santane Snoswall, a research fellow at the Centre for Health Sciences Research at the University of Queensland and a strong advocate of telehealth. She was the lead author in a croaky news article about the ways it can be used to help meet the challenges of the coronavirus and relieving its impact on the health system. First, she explained how telehealth has mainly been delivered in Australia via video conferencing. So in Australia, that's routinely a video conference is the thing that's associated with telehealth. It depends which country you look at. There's actually probably three main modalities of telehealth. And so video conference is the main one. That's what we routinely fund. Um, And the second one is remote monitoring, which people would be starting to get familiar with, with the Apple watches and all of those sorts of like home blood pressure monitoring and stuff. Um, where doctors would log in online and have a look at those numbers and then communicate with them about them. Um, And then the other sort is called store and forward, which is more jargony than it needs to be. But basically it's like when you, if you wanted to see a dermatologist, you could take an image of something on your skin and send that image to the dermatologist and they could reply and say, oh, don't worry about it, you're all good, or come in for an appointment. So it's not new, it's been around for quite some time, but it's only been available to some people, hasn't it? Yes, yeah, so uh, telehealth is not new at all. And as you said, it's uh, something that can be done by phone as well. And so even before, I'd say the three that I sort of described have been in the works for a good two decades at least. And before that, there was telephone. And then before that, there was radio. Um, so there's been codes for telehealth by a video conference since uh, 2011, 2012. A lot of those um, are only available to people in really rural and remote areas, but routinely it's not available to people in metropolitan areas, which is something that's new given the presentation of uh, coronavirus. Yes, so now that the government has made this Medicare rebate uh, available to encourage the use of telehealth for consultations involving people with possibly with COVID-19, how significant Mm. is that? I think it's really significant. I think um, there's a couple of different... So obviously, I work in the area of research with telehealth, and we know that there's a a whole host of reasons why uptake in Australia hasn't been um, prolific. Like, it's not... I think that one of those reasons is that a lot of people don't see it as an option. They're not aware of it. They don't know that it exists. And so, well, I would not sell a pandemic to people as a way to increase the use of telehealth, that it's going to build awareness of this new capability or this capability that we've had for a long time, that people can really redefine the way they get care. And it's got the benefits of limiting person-to-person transmission, both for the patient and also maybe if the, the medico is infected, that they still can, can work as a doctor. 
Yeah, definitely. So in the in this is why telehealth has such good applications for a communicable disease like um, COVID nineteen because it can restrict all of that in person potential risk. And obviously, we have a limited supply of health practitioners in Australia, and we'd really like them to be protected as well. So if we don't have to have somebody face-to-face with a practitioner and we think they might have the virus and they can be stay in isolation and not be sitting in a waiting room with lots of other people who may or may not be infected, it's a really good thing. Then this could really, hopefully, slow down the, the transmission of the illness. I think it's going to have to be worked in with a whole lot of other things. But yes, I I would hope that. And not only that, it's something that I think, you know, from all of the other media we've seen around COVID-19, people are, um, they're quite afraid. And so I think it also offers a bit of peace of mind. And if people are aware that those with symptoms or those who are supposed to be isolated are going to video conference rather than sitting in a waiting room at a doctor's surgery, they may be less afraid of seeking care or going to an emergency department for things that are not related to the virus. And if it's used successfully with COVID-19, do you think there's implications for it to be more widely used amongst the Australian community, especially with chronic illness? So people don't have to go into specialists all the time that they they can do this. I would hope so. Australia is a really big country even apart from our geographical barriers that sometimes can reduce the amount that people can access care. um, Chronic illness is something that can often bear a really big cost for the community in that people have to take a lot of time off work to go to all of the various appointments and they have to do all their readings and measures. And if that can be integrated and some of that care can be provided in a more convenient digital way, then I think that there's a lot of benefits for society as well. And so I'm hoping that there will be some positive experiences with telehealth out of this for patients and for the providers. And what about testing for COVID-19? How does that fit in with telehealth? Um, Given the fact that we need it to be done in a timely nature, from my understanding, the benefit telehealth offers here is that it um, allows triage, effective triage. And so say you were to talk to somebody, you could send them to a location that where the health practitioners are already wearing all the appropriate PPE to have their screening. Most importantly, I think it's also about keep giving those that are isolated um, still the, maintaining the access to care that they need while they're isolated as well as, you know, making sure people are screened. Centane hopes an increase in the use of telehealth during the COVID-19 outbreak will help overcome some of the barriers to its use more broadly, such as clinicians' reluctance to use something unfamiliar, a lack of consumer awareness and little education of medical undergraduates in its use. Another thing she is happy to see is a move towards electronic prescriptions, paving the way for more convenient access to medications for patients. And that'll be potentially really good as well for our future telehealth endeavours as a nation because if you can see a doctor over Skype but you still have to go physically to pick up a prescription to take to the pharmacy, then it mitigates some of the uh, potential benefits. listening to Crokey Voices from the team at Crokey News. If you like what you're hearing, please visit crokey.org and check out all our stories. And remember to subscribe and like us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Every day presents new challenges and unfolding information about COVID-19, and among those facing the most challenging times are remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities. In a recent post on Crokey News, Chips McAnulty, the Executive Director of the Central Australia Academic Health Science Network in Alice Springs, highlighted some of those concerns. The greater health risk for Indigenous people, already enduring worse health outcomes than the average Australian, and scarcer resources. The Networks Council met recently in Tennant Creek, where the pandemic was the number one issue. Certainly identified as the key thing facing regional and remote Australia, especially um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, given the low health outcomes they experience in any case. And that's exacerbated by the fact that it affects people who are getting older and have things like respiratory problems. So these communities are particularly at risk because, as you say, the the older people and also so many people with underlying health conditions. How well are these communities actually resourced to meet this challenge? It, It varies, obviously, but been identified for a long time that more resources are needed, both in terms of workforce and, you know, in the current situation, having, in some cases, personal protection and stuff like that available in sufficient amounts. It's a mix of ongoing shortage of resources combined with potentially huge and growing demand for resources. It's been very disturbing to hear some of the the scenarios from Italy and uh, doctors and healthcare workers making decisions about who they'll treat based on their best chances of survival. Does that really particularly worry you for remote communities given the the level of, of other illnesses and comorbidities? Yes, I mean we already know that the number of ICU beds and high dependency beds in Darwin and Alice Springs is, is limited. So that automatically means that there may have to be those kinds of really, really difficult decisions being made by intensive care health personnel. I guess my argument would be that for this kind of emergency triaging and battlefield triaging would affect Aboriginal people to a greater extent if, if indeed that sort of thing started to happen. The prospect of that is, is frankly very scary. Well, the biggest challenge, I suppose, at the moment is just to try to keep the infection out of these communities. Yeah, we've already got the situation where both the Northern Land Council and the Central Land Council um, are looking at reducing any non-essential visits. And certainly both the APY lands in South Australia and Ngunnajara lands just across the border in WA have put in very restricted access to those communities. And meanwhile, all the research groups, uh, health research groups in the Northern Territory have been looking to stop any non-essential field work. And certainly if, if people have travelled back from overseas anywhere over the last few weeks, they certainly won't be allowed to get out bush. So if it does get into the communities, what will those people in there with the responsibility, what will the health workers be able to do? What would the priorities be? Well, already we're working on, for example, you know, um, prevention stuff in terms of getting material out about sort of washing hands, not hanging around in crowds, and to monitor your health. 
terms of, you know, runny noses, sneezing and the rest of it. But there's huge difficulties. Firstly, um, because of massive overcrowding in housing, the, the chances of actually getting someone to self-isolate are really limited. So plans are underway if people look like they may be may have it is to isolate them as much as possible on a community and then get them into town. And work is happening on finding accommodation for people who need to be isolated in town. One of the problems, of course, is is the lack of uh, any testing. At this stage, the only testing station is in Darwin and the testing unit won't be available here in Alice Springs till next week. And one of the disadvantages is that even the testing done in Alice Springs will need to be sent to Darwin for analysis. So there could be delays of uh, 24, 36 hours to get the results. Chip says another issue for remote communities is their reliance on locum health workers and agency staff, and that cuts to domestic air services in the face of the virus will make it more difficult to get these people in and out of community. He backs a call from Pat Turner, the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, for Defence Force personnel to be deployed to communities to help relieve current health staff and to assist in getting people in and out as required. And Chips finished with this message to communities. To perhaps quote Joe Martin Jard, who's the CEO of the Central Land Council, one of his bits of messaging to people in the bush is to stay on country and care for family. Well, that's it for our first Crokey Voices. Be sure to visit us at croaky.org and join the conversation. And remember to listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.